This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mandatory masks on public transit. We're on the side of safety, and, you know, why not? And it's good that they're keeping everyone safe. What we can learn from other big cities who've already done it. Back to school confusion. Well, I know that this is the biggest challenge that the education community has ever had. What the Premier and Dr. Bonnie Henry are saying to ease parents' fears. And a devastating ATV tragedy. He tried taking care of us one last time and he didn't make it. Remembering the man who died and a warning from his family. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Masks will now be mandatory on trains, buses, and sea buses throughout the province starting August 24th. The move making Vancouver among the last major cities across the country to adopt the policy. Rumina Dea has more on the decision, and Rumina, there are still concerns about just how you enforce this. Sophie, legitimate concerns being raised by the public and bus drivers regarding who's going to police passengers if they don't comply. Santos perplexed as to what took so long to make masks mandatory on public transit. Because people like me, they get sick very easy with no immune system. They get sick from going on the bus and they're probably going to get killed. Some will be exempt, including riders with underlying medical issues, disabilities, plus children under five. The Transit Authority asking passengers to obtain an exemption card. I agree with it. I mean, it's a better way to stay safe. I think that's a good thing to do. I say wear a die. TransLink opting for a soft touch to start. Education, not enforcement. Based on the experience of other major Canadian cities, now requiring riders to mask up. Compliance rates, say in Montreal and Toronto, are in the 90% plus uh, compliance since they instituted mandatory um, use of masks. And that is really with little or no um, enforcement. I wouldn't get on the SkyTrain right now. I would think that the only way I would get on there is if they had a, a policeman on every train that people were situ situated six feet apart. Bus drivers also expressing concerns. Uh, yes. So I, I don't know if I, I don't think it's up to me to enforce it. Hopefully, you know, everyone just does the right thing. Compulsory masks on transit have sparked violent altercations globally. A bus driver ended up brain dead and ultimately died in France last month after he was beaten for asking a group of passengers to wear masks. Unifor knows the risks are real. Uh, but really, any enforcement uh, lies with transit security, transit police. Uh, our members are there to drive the public safely. They're going to continue to focus on that. Everything is hinging on public acceptance of the new policy. TransLink says fines and removing riders for not wearing a mask are options if it becomes absolutely necessary. Sophie. Rumina Dea reporting. Rumina, thank you. 
And while on the topic of masks, Walmart will also soon require all customers to wear them in stores across Canada. A spokesperson tells Global News the rule will come into effect August 12th. All customers and employees in Walmart stores will have to wear a mask or a face covering, regardless of whether there is a local government mandate in place. South of the border, Walmart implemented their mandatory mask policy back in July. In the meantime, we are seeing another day with over 40 new COVID cases in B.C. Worth keeping an eye on for sure, but health officials are not sounding the alarms just yet. For a second day in a row, we have 47 new cases. Brings our total to 3,881 for B.C. No new deaths in the past five days, so that holds at 195. 11 people are in hospital, that's up two. Five of them are in ICU. 3,315 people are now considered, uh, or sorry, now considered recovered. That leaves us with 371 active cases. All right, Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more on the case uptick. Keith, you've pointed out how demographics are trending younger lately, and Mm -hmm. today, a pretty stern message about the behavior that's putting all of us at risk. Yeah, that message came from Health Minister Adrian Dix. Uh, The two of us have talked about the shifting demographics, as I reported last night. People aged 20 to 29 are getting this virus more than any other age group, and they're the people who are partying the most. And Adrian Dix has a firm and stern message to those people. Basically, now is not the time to engage in that behavior. Let's be clear. It's not the location of the behavior. It's the behavior in the location, whether it's table hopping or or packed houseboats or free-for-all parties in a private residence. Large groups over an extended time period are the biggest welcome mat there is for COVID-19. And it's time to stop putting out that welcome mat. Keith, we've heard stories, rumors in some cases about uh, house parties, but Dr. Henry talked about one recent house party and how it's adversely affected so many people. What are the details? Yeah, quite interesting. I asked her about this. We'd heard that when the numbers were presented on Tuesday with 146 uh, new cases, a number of those were associated, I was told, with a party. I think it was in North Vancouver. I asked her what what the impact of that was in terms of uh, people who had to self-isolate as a result. And her answer, quite frankly, surprised me. How many people are now self-isolating because of that one single event when people went from that party to other parties? Listen for this number. The numbers of contacts related to that are in the, the 400 range. So we do know that um, some of these, um, even though they may have been smaller individual parties, the overlapping groups meant that there's a large number of people who were potentially exposed. So that's our warning right now, is that's where we're, we're seeing um, the virus get a chance to, to transmit to potentially large numbers of people. So the number of people required to self-isolate right now is getting alarmingly high. And these are people who have been exposed to the virus uh, from people who have attended big social gatherings such as parties. Uh, Last week was about 1,100. It is now 1,518 people required to stay home, off the job, away from friends because they've been exposed uh, to COVID-19. And that number is going to grow in the days ahead. And let's hope there's 100% compliance. But, of course, Mm -hmm. we're realistic about it, too. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. Well, despite widespread concern from parents and teachers, Premier John Horgan says the province remains on track for a full return to classroom learning in September without mandatory mask rules. But Horgan also says everyone involved will need to be flexible as the COVID crisis continues to evolve. Richard Zussman reports. 
Like many parents in British Columbia, Mike Weller has found the province's return to school plan much harder than a layup. Dr. Henry was saying fewer spaces, bigger spaces, stay six feet apart from everybody, etc. But then for kids, you can't do that in a classroom. It's, it's sort of all the guidelines have gone away and we don't understand why. Premier John Horgan tackling questions Thursday for the first time on the new plan, speaking directly to Weller and other parents. Well, I know that this is the biggest challenge that the education community has ever had uh, in 100 years. The concerns around the plan are growing. How can kids physically distance in classrooms? How will the learning groups work? And why aren't there mask requirements in schools? So we now have a very good idea. It's not perfect. There are things that we are still learning. Dr. Bonnie Henry providing some more details on a fall return, saying schools will improve ventilation, ban clusters of parents and staff at pickup and drop-offs, and encourage mask wearing when distancing isn't possible. The reminder is schools will be much different than in March, and things like desks can be removed to make things safer. We have school health officers for every school in this province who work with our schools to make sure that if there's a case of measles, if there's a case of meningitis, if there's a case of COVID, we have a plan, we know what to do. But all these changes will take time to implement. That's the main reason calls are growing to push back the start of school. And the province isn't ruling it out. What we're looking for is flexibility so that we are able to meet with our staffs in schools prior to students' arrival. And how that looks, it could be different, perhaps in different locations. Going into this September, we need to be more flexible than ever before. But Weller says parents need more information so they can be flexible. Not just about what school will look like inside, but what alternatives will exist for families who aren't comfortable sending their kids back. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Vancouver Coastal Health is warning beachgoers of a possible COVID-19 exposure. Those who visited Lions Bay Beach Park on July 26th through to the 27th and the 29th through to the 31st may have been exposed to the virus. Vancouver Coastal Health says it's a low risk, but anyone who was in that area is asked to self-monitor for symptoms. If you do feel unwell, you're asked to self-isolate and get tested. A major milestone today for Surrey's new civic police force. Members of the police board have officially been sworn in at their first public meeting. But as Ted Chernecki reports, those opposed to the move away from the RCMP are not giving up the fight. Mayor McCallum, would you please recite your oath or solemn affirmation of office? Not the ongoing support for the RCMP, not even a worldwide pandemic seems able to slow Surrey's inexorable march to what's being called the Surrey Police service. Given a growing call to defund police forces elsewhere, Surrey has decided the term police force is inappropriate. Today, the oath of office taken by the mayor and board members. Today is an incredible special day. It has been a long time coming. And March 31st next year, eight months away, is still the target date for the handover, though the province and feds could still delay things if they believe Surrey isn't ready. Amendments might be necessary to adjust that as that goes forward. The integrated transition, however, as I say, it's important to note, um, the specific details of that are still to be worked out with the province and the federal government. The Surrey Board of Trade has been and continues to be an open critic of the transition, saying this is not the right time. You know, let's focus on supporting our business community, supporting jobs, and everything else like uh, the RCMP transition to a Surrey police force should be put on ice. 
Even one of the new board members wanted an answer to an obvious question. What is this going to cost to transition? I know there's going to be a substantial transition cost. The answer? There is a one-page document in their five-year budget that will outline the cost, but that document wasn't made available to the public today. In March, former B.C. Attorney General Wally Opel released a report suggesting the new police service would add $19 million to Surrey's operating budget in 2021, a 10.9% increase. This is in addition to a one-time capital and transition cost of $40 million. Surrey has yet to hire a police chief or a Freedom of Information officer. The board will meet once a month. Ted Chernecki, Global News. A new cancer treatment center is set to open in B.C. The announcement from Premier Horgan and Health Minister Adrian Dix today that people living in Surrey will have access to additional cancer care with the opening of a regional cancer center. Surrey's new hospital being built in Cloverdale will be home to the center. The announcement comes as B.C. tries to clear the backlog of elective surgeries postponed because of the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, the toughest decision that we had to make was cancelling elective surgeries for people right across the province. But we've seen a very positive rebound because of the commitment of healthcare workers, doctors, ER nurse, or, or operating room nurses and others in the system to make sure that we can bounce back as quickly as possible. Suspicious fire at a summer camp. It's a major loss for the children who visit there why it's even more devastating in the COVID era in just over a minute. It's an auction of Jurassic proportions. Why the bidding was hot and heavy for this BC collection of animatronic dinosaurs coming up on the news hour. And he didn't want to miss the bus, but is so thankful the bus missed him. A close call at the curb later. Right now, though, a fire in Mission has left many kids without their beloved summer camp. The blaze broke out early this morning at the Calsa Center on Stave Lake Road, destroying the gymnasium. Paul Johnson joins us from Mission with more on the circumstances of this suspicious fire. Paul. Sophie, the fire happened in the middle of the night. This was a gym slash recreational facility that they use here at the camp. It is a total loss. Luckily, no one was in or around the building, so there are no injuries associated with this fire. Big, scary, very smoky, very hot. That's camp director Sandeep Kaur describing the blaze that destroyed the Kulsa Center, Miracle Valley's gym. And we were really, really worried because it wasn't raining at that time. And it's been dry here since July 3rd. Here's a look at that building in previous years. The camp has not only lost the use of the building, but also a lot of recreational equipment that they've been storing there. It's very unfortunate that um, students or campers that come in the future um, may not have these activities. And beyond the adjustment to that loss, there's another thing to consider, the mystery of how the fire started. Well, it's hard to say at this point. Investigators that were on scene initially um, made some observations that made them believe that the fire was suspicious. Mission RCMP have given the case to their serious crimes unit. And one intriguing question early on is who made the initial call to the fire department? It wasn't anybody at the camp and they'd like to talk to the person who made it. 
Speaking about the cause, Corps can only say in the decade they've been running the camp, they've only ever had some low-level vandalism, but have otherwise had good relations with the rest of the community. We're sharing love. So uh, when you hear that potentially it's arson or potentially it's deliberately set, it's a shock. So there were no actual campers here at the time of the fire. The camp has actually been closed this summer because of the COVID-19 epidemic. There were, however, a small number of people here associated with the staff skeleton crew that's been remaining on site. And again, none of them were hurt in this fire. Sophie, that's the latest permission. Back to you. All right. Thanks for that, Paul. Coming up next, remembering a devoted father who died doing what he loved. He was... He was a beautiful soul. The tragic accident that took his life next. Also coming up, why small dog owners are calling for a park all their own. Traffic is steady over here at the Portman Bridge in both directions. Minimal delays through Coquitlam for eastbound traffic and westbound traffic is problem-free out of Surrey. From help on the road to protecting your home and car, BCAA's local experts are here for your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Port Bridge. A big boost today for some of Metro Vancouver's most popular hiking trails. The federal and provincial governments have announced a $3.5 million plan to improve Grouse Mountain Regional Park. That'll include upgrades to the Grouse Grind, the BCMC, and Baden-Powell Trails. The money will go toward Trailhead Plaza expansion, kiosks, and viewpoints. The infrastructure investment comes as BC parks have seen a huge increase in visitors in recent months. We have heard, especially during these challenging COVID-19 months, that our outdoor recreational sites also provides a fantastic opportunity for people to exercise positive mental health. A woman is calling for changes to Vancouver dog parks after her small breed dog was attacked. An online petition is picking up steam with nearly 2,000 signatures. It calls on the city of Vancouver to create areas within off-leash dog parks exclusively for small dogs. The petition's organizer, Vanessa Tom, says her eight-pound dog, Zoe, was attacked and killed by a larger dog at New Brighton Park on July 12th. Tom now wants mandatory changes so that pet owners can let their smaller dogs play freely without the fear of being attacked. I've heard people say they are scared to take their small dog to an off-leash park in fear of something like this happening. It is important that we make this change to make parks safe for small dogs. Jonathan Myers is being remembered tonight as a hard-working, loving father, husband, and brother. The 29-year-old was killed in an ATV accident Tuesday night on a logging road outside of Hope. Catherine Urquhart reports. <coughs> Jonathan Myers adored his two young children, two-year-old Matthias and one-year-old Silas. The little boys are now fatherless, after their dad died while coming to their rescue. He tried taking care of us one last time and he didn't make it. <laughs> on Tuesday, Meyer's children and wife were on a logging road in Hope when they got a flat tire. The local roofer rushed to help them, riding there on his ATV. He failed to negotiate a corner and he went down 
an embankment. He tried, drove through like the side of the embankment about 200 feet, and then he hit a tree that ended up taking his life. And I remember saying to him, be careful, I love you. Little did I know that was the last time. Family members have set up a GoFundMe to help Jonathan's widow and boys. They're also urging ATV users to slow down. Speed was definitely a factor. He came around a corner way too fast and lost control. He did what he could to try and keep it on the road and he just, he wasn't successful. Loved ones say the 29-year-old died much too soon, but lived a meaningful and joyful life. He was happy. He lived life to the fullest. <laughs> In hope, Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Still ahead, a COVID flare-up in the U.S. Midwest. A very good friend of mine just tested positive. Do you know that? Ohio's governor gets infected and finds out just hours before meeting with Donald Trump. Also tonight, Lebanese struggle to come to terms with the scale of damage to the capital, Beirut, and they plea for help. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Must be summer. It's a busy weeknight over here at Tawasin Ferry Terminal. The 7 o'clock sailing to Swartz Bay is at three-quarters capacity. The 6.45 sailing to Southern Gulf Islands is 97% full. And the 8.15 boat to Duke Point is at 95% capacity. Sussex Insurance has little plant offices inside Walmarts and the real Canadian superstores throughout B.C. For hours and locations, visit sussexinsurance.com. Open every day. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at Tawasin Ferry Terminal. A somber anniversary remembering one of the defining moments of the Second World War. The peace bell tolled in Hiroshima today, marking the 75th anniversary of the atomic bomb attack. A moment of silence was held at the exact time the U.S. dropped the bomb, killing 140,000 people. Three days later, a second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, and within a week, the Japanese surrendered. This year's memorial was significantly scaled back because of the pandemic. The deadly blasts in Beirut are only worsening the problems Lebanon has been facing for decades. As Global's Jasmine Pisano reports, the devastation is likely to cause even more people to go hungry and the economic crisis to deepen. I don't know how many more things this country can humanly go through. The very tragic explosion that took place in Lebanon on Tuesday comes on top of so many layers of crises that Lebanon has been undergoing. 
Lebanon was already a country in crisis. It went through 15 years of civil war that ended in 1990. But even now, tensions remain. The economy has been in a meltdown, with almost half of the population living under the poverty line. We've seen uh, a banking crisis that means you can't even get your money out of the bank. One of the highest debt GDP ratios in the world, one of the most indebted countries in the world, which means that we don't get basic public services. We're not getting the garbage uh, picked up in this country. We don't have electricity. We have 16 hours a day of, of power cuts. It's kind of just like hanging on by a thread. We're just kind of living on luck. Um, and anything can go wrong at any time. This year, the situation in Lebanon became even worse when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, beyond the health crisis. It also threw people out of work. Now the explosions near Beirut's port and central district, which killed at least 135 people and injured thousands. Because of the explosions, the country might be facing even worse food security and poverty problems. It left a quarter of a million people without habitable homes. The central grain silo in Lebanon was destroyed in the blast, leaving the nation with a grain reserve that will feed people for less than a month. This is where the Lebanese store their grain for their daily bread. The Lebanese literally eat bread every day. It's called the Aish in Arabic, which means live. Now with the grains all gone and with the difficulty of importing anything and with the financial crisis that makes it impossible for the country to pay, for goods to be imported. Now countries around the world are stepping up to help the Lebanese people, like Canada, which gave more than a million dollars to the Red Cross to meet urgent needs like food and medical services, and is promising up to $5 million in humanitarian aid. Jordan also sent a field hospital to Beirut, setting up dozens of operating beds. Agencies with the United Nations have also been trying to coordinate relief efforts for some of the most vulnerable, like refugees. This is a longer-term economic crisis that's been going on for a few months. It's been fueling and brewing. And the consequences on every single household in Lebanon has been very deeply felt. Jasmine Pisano, Global News. Now an amazingly close call caught on camera. The victim lucky to have suffered only what appear to be minor injuries. It happened in Turkey, a man patiently waiting for the bus when CCTV footage from the moment shows that he had to leap out of the way when he realized the bus was heading straight for him. After the bus hit a wall and Kareen passed him, the man fell to the ground, clutching his leg. Police have not said why the driver lost control. A Canadian citizen has been handed a death sentence in China for drug charges. Xu Wei Hong has been convicted of manufacturing ketamine. Death sentences are automatically referred to China's highest court for review. The ruling comes amid heightened tensions between Canada and China over the arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver and the detention of two other Canadian men in China on espionage charges. Somehow, nobody was hurt when a construction crane collapsed across a busy Toronto intersection this morning, the second time it's happened in the past three weeks. It happened just after 10.30 Toronto time at the intersection of River and Dundas streets. Several streets and businesses in the immediate area have been closed. The cause of the collapse is now under investigation, but the crane was not in operation at the time, and there were no workers at the construction site. A different crane collapsed July 16th. It was kind of scary. It was nice that the response was that... I don't know, 20 people immediately stopped what they were doing and kind of ran towards it to see if anyone was okay. It's a good day for us when uh, we don't have uh, 
fatalities due to this, and it could have been much worse for us. The National Rifle Association, one of the most powerful organizations in the United States, was dealt a huge legal blow today, one that could mean the end of the group. For years, the NRA diverted millions and millions of dollars away from its charitable mission for personal use by senior leadership. New York Attorney General Letitia James today announced a lawsuit targeting the NRA as a whole, as well as its top executives. James outlined staggering levels of alleged misuse of donations to the nonprofit, including lavish personal travel, lucrative consulting contracts, and luxury club memberships. It's clear that the NRA has been failing to carry out its stated mission for many, many years, and instead has operated as a breeding ground for greed, abuse, and brazen illegality. The United States is on the cusp of surpassing 5 million cases of COVID-19, adding another million cases in just the past two weeks. And now another state leader has tested positive, the day he was supposed to meet President Trump. Global's Reggie Cicchini has the latest. The U.S. Midwest is facing a flare-up in COVID-19 cases. On Thursday, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine tweeted, I took a COVID test. I tested positive. DeWine was tested as he stood waiting for President Trump, who's in the Buckeye State, for a series of campaign-style stops. A very good friend of mine just tested positive. Do you know that? And we want to wish him the best. He'll be fine. DeWine is the second Republican governor to test positive after Oklahoma state leader contracted the virus earlier this summer. Meanwhile, the South is also under siege. Mississippi's hospitals are at a breaking point. We have 14 patients that need an ICU bed and there is not one available. While the state's push to reopen schools is now in question. Six total students who've exposed additional folks within the school system. 100 students from one district are now under quarantine. And it's that race to get kids back to class that's sparking concern across the country. This is something that we've got to get our hands around. People are going to die in our schools. This Florida teacher penned her own obituary, facing a forced return to work. She stood up for injustice embraced those who differed from her, and truly listened when spoken to. All of it undercuts President Trump's false messaging. Children are almost, and I would almost say definitely, but almost immune from this disease. Trump's social media posts containing that information were flagged and removed. A quarter million children are among the nearly five million people who have fallen ill since the pandemic began. If you get infected, even if you have no symptoms... You are part of the propagation of the pandemic. A dire warning as this virus presses on. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Up ahead, what a time to be taking over at YVR. But obviously COVID has made for some big changes here. The new woman in charge and how she's handling the crisis she inherited in her first month on the job. And later in sports, morning glory for the Vancouver Canucks, doing something they haven't done since 2011. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. 
frightening moments for some Okanagan residents north of Penticton this morning when the call to evacuate came suddenly as flames erupted near their homes. Global's Shelby Tom reports on how the morning unfolded and the efforts of firefighters to get the blaze under control. It's around 8 a.m. on Thursday during the morning rush hour when passing motorists spot smoke and flame beside Highway 97 north of Penticton. The aggressive grass fire quickly grows, prompting police to order a tactical evacuation of nearly 80 homes and a golf course in the Sage Mesa neighborhood. The tactical evacuation is to ensure the safety of residents in that area. I grabbed a couple masks. Jean Hallett is awoken from her sleep to a knock at her door that she was in immediate danger. Rushed around the house, grabbed the dog and the kennel and my purse and threw some clothes on and was out the door in probably less than five minutes. Nicole Clark's home is also in the path of the flames. I said, can we grab some things? And she said, no, you need to leave right now. The fire is coming up the hill. It was terrifying. I went into immediate panic attack. An emergency reception center is set up in downtown Penticton and Highway 97 is shut down in both directions as fire crews with air support from the BC Wildfire Service battle the out-of-control blaze. The Penticton Fire Department Structural Protection Unit is deployed to save homes, the fire burning to the property line of this residence. Two and a half hours into the firefight, the grass fire is classified as being held, meaning it's not expected to spread. No homes are lost, no one is injured. The highway is reopened and evacuees are allowed to return home. By mid-afternoon, ground crews are dousing hot spots. From our vantage point on a boat here on Okanagan Lake, you can see the black and charred hillside behind me and how this fire grew from the side of Highway 97, burning in sage and brush up the silt slope and threatening the homes above. The cause of the fire is under investigation. Shelby Tom, Global News. A collection of prehistoric animatronic hits the auction block on the on the auction block. Who bought it and where most of it's going right after the weather forecast with Yvonne. All right, what a difference a day makes. <laughs> I know I'm not the first guy to say that today, but uh, Yvonne is in now with a look at our forecast and the rain that arrived. Yeah, wet start to the morning, much needed for many areas across the south coast. Uh, an improvement is on the way just in time for the weekend, and I'll have the timeline in just a moment. Here's the ominous-looking clouds overlooking English Bay. Temperatures are currently sitting at 19 degrees, and we've got a southwesterly wind at 13 kilometers per hour. Some of the amounts and rainfall totals that we did see, Sea Island, that's just a weather station close to the airport, over 40 millimeters, similar for Westwood Plateau in Coquitlam. Over 20 millimeters for West Van in areas near Stanley Park. So a significant amount of rain fell in the early morning hours. We still have a few isolated showers popping up this evening. Eastern areas and stretching into the Fraser Valley. And some instability, especially for the central and southeastern corners of the province. Risk of a thunderstorm still for this evening. And then it should start to ease off as that front pushes its way towards the east. This is the next one that we're keeping a close eye on. This weather maker moves. Moving in along the north and central coast as early as the morning hours, pushing in for the island, the northern and central half. And then Metro Vancouver, a heads up for tomorrow night. We are looking at a chance of showers. This will be our blip in the forecast. And then it should ease off with a nice clearing on the way. So just in time for the weekend. Tomorrow, though, it will be a mainly cloudy sky for all areas across Metro Vancouver. And temperatures will start to bump up as we get in towards the latter half of the weekend and leading in towards Monday. 
Northern half of the province inland tomorrow, risk of a thunderstorm. Most areas across the central interior will start to see an increase in cloud cover and a chance of showers. Tomorrow for Whistler, it is showers for the day and mainly cloudy for Metro Vancouver. So the showers move in towards the evening, clearing on the way and then really brightening up, warming up summer-like once again as we get in towards our Sunday, Monday. Tonight's weather window, a fantastic shot. This was shot in English Bay. So thank you so much, Jason. Beautiful. Thanks, Yvonne. Love that. All right, an oddball auction in Langley today is proving to be quite a hit. Between 80 and 100 animatronic dinosaurs were part of an online auction that drew a flood of bids from around the world. The items came from a touring exhibit that went bankrupt. The fake dinos sold for between $6,000 for a smaller one to $38,500 for a T-Rex that went to Drumheller, Alberta. And the bidding has been more aggressive than expected. So we've got bidders from Australia, from... Germany, from Great Britain, we've had bidders from Spain, we've got bidders from Cambodia, we've got bidders from lots, most of the American states, uh, we have bidders, but like every auction, most of it sells locally. At least one of the dinosaurs ended up going to a Victoria liquor store that has a dinosaur theme. <laughs> Boy, that's going to surprise Baldry when he shows up there. <laughs> Uh, all right, look who joined us, Squire Barnes, and uh, it was hockey in the morning today. It was morning hockey, and, you know, actually early in the game, it looked like both teams were still a little bit sleepy, but then it got going, and the Canucks had a shutout win, so that puts them one victory away from the final 16. It might not have been the skill that got us through tonight. It might have been a lot of will that got us uh, this win tonight. We'll show you. That will and the skill as the Canucks beat the Wild 3-0. They're up now 2-1 in the series. And flying may never be the same, but the new CEO of Vancouver Airport Authority is working to make it even better. Probably a little confusing for hockey fans today as well, Squire. Well, yes. Um, the Canucks had the late game on these uh, bubble games uh, in the first two, and today was the early game. So the ice was at least pretty good. And going into this series with Minnesota, the Canucks talked about having to win with will over skill. You just heard Travis Green say that. But you do need skill. And the Canucks skilled players are their young ones. Most of Minnesota's skilled players outside of Kevin Fiala are older guys in their 30s, guys who were better before than they are now. And the Canucks youth has been taking advantage since game number one. Games two, games three, the young guys have been the best guys. They have a 2-1 series lead. Game four is tomorrow night. They have survived numerous power plays against, and they've also survived Minnesota trying to rough them up. And that is one futuristic-looking building in Edmonton. Brandon Sutter's had some chances in this series. I think sooner or later he's going to score. Alex Stalock stops him here. Then he got another chance to score. 
and Staylock again got in the way. Pass by Jake Vertanen, little backhand, right shoulder saved by Staylock. Ryan Hartman goes after Pedersen, and this is nasty. From behind, now Pedersen lays a hit there on Coy, but then Hartman gets him and folds him against the board. This is what you like to see. JT Miller coming to Pedersen's defense, and you also like to see the fact that Pedersen is like Gumby and being bent against the boards didn't hurt him. All right, power play, second period. Brock Besser is down low, and it's in. And this one is for an old friend of his, Ty, who was unfortunately killed six years ago on this day. You see right there. That's for you, buddy. So one nothing for the Canucks. Chance in front, no, that's not going in. Markstrom made 27 saves today, and there were 22 block shots in front of him. Antoine Roussel, who got a puck in the head from Jake Vertanen in game two, he's okay. So okay, he scores. Good speed. He's got a bit of a shiner now, but... And it's Antoine That's beautiful. 2 nothing for the Canucks. Bo Horvat. Oh, if you had just put it a little more to the right-hand side, you might have scored there. Nice save by Staylock, but he basically put the pug back in his glove. Markstrom. Stop. Markstrom. Stop. No easy goals on him today. Quinn Hughes had uh, three assists in this game. Power play Canucks. Hughes, EP40, three zip. And that's his first, I guess it's a playoff goal. Yeah, they're counting these as playoff stats. 3-0 the final. Canucks lead the series 2-1. Game four is tomorrow, 7:45. Now, when the NHL stopped at season in March, the Canucks were a team that was struggling defensively. They basically needed their goalies to steal a game or they had to outscore their mistakes. But in this series so far, they have not allowed a five-on-five goal in three games. Now, with all the penalties, it might seem there is never any five-on-five time. But just the same, the Canucks have been perfect at defending these situations. Got to give our team a lot of credit for buying in to, you know, to to playing the way you need to play in the playoffs to win. Uh, if you're not willing to defend and you're not willing to be strong around your net, uh, you're probably not going to win many games. And we've done that so far. Uh, the guys understand that we've got to be good in that area uh, if we want to win, and, they, and they buy, they're buying in. Okay, round robins games today. Philadelphia beat Washington 3-1. Vegas beat St. Louis 6-4. The WHL says on December 4th they hope to start next season but despite the late start they still want a full 68 game season and four playoff rounds of course this will all depend on what the situation is in december pga championship round one down in san francisco tiger he's ready for cold weather and his putter is ready for major championship golf two under par he was one of the early starters today bryson DeChambeau. man he takes a hack this broke his driver. He leaned on it right after that, and he had to get a new one. He could get a new one because he didn't do that in anger. It happened in the course of play. Adam Hadwin's first hole. Second shot. Now, this is the way you like to start a golf round. Eagle. 
Also had a nice approach shot here. He's at two under par. The last check, Jason Day's in the clubhouse at five under. And 11 players are four under, but they are still, uh, why am I looking over here? They are still on the course. There's a big TV over here. That's a <laughs> good place to view the highlights. Yeah. Thanks, All Squire. right. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Andrew for a look ahead to Global News at 11. And thanks, Sophie. The latest stats show there are fewer drunk drivers on Vancouver streets this summer. We'll tell you how many impaired drivers were taken off the road. And West Vancouver barber Michelle Ibrahim, who's originally from Lebanon, has family in Beirut who have been devastated by that massive explosion. Ibrahim is raising funds for the Red Cross. We'll have more on what he's hearing from relatives about the situation in Lebanon and how you can help. That's all coming up tonight at 11. Sophie. Chris. All right. Thanks, Ann. When we come back, piloting the Vancouver Airport Authority through some turbulence. Why she left a successful job in finance to tackle the crisis in air travel. Next. Well, despite a pandemic that has severely impacted the global travel industry, the new head of YVR says the Vancouver Airport is well positioned to weather the storm. As Jordan Armstrong reports, Tamara Vrooman says her goal is to get people flying again safely. YVR has a new CEO, but at a time when terminals are near empty, it begs the question, is the airport going broke? YVR is not going broke. We, uh, we had the very privileged position of coming into COVID in a very strong financial position. You know, all of those years of growth had built up cash reserves. Tamara Vrooman yeah. knows money. She's a former deputy finance minister in the B.C. government and most recently CEO of Van City. She's been on the job at the airport five weeks. And it's not every day that you get an opportunity, in this case, somewhat of a forced opportunity to take a couple of steps back, to take a look at a, an entire organization and a business end to end, to think about what it could be like in the future. The goal for the immediate future is to get people flying again. Right now, YVR is seeing just 10,000 passengers a day, compared with up to 85,000 this time last year. How do we make sure that we have the protocols in place that people understand and give them confidence to fly? So that's enhanced screening, that's masks, that's plexiglass, but that's also things like potentially uh, testing. Testing to limit the quarantine period, which for many is the biggest obstacle against long-haul travel. The CEO of London's Heathrow has called for layered testing, and Vrooman likes the idea. Test one 72 hours before a flight, the second at the airport the third test sometime after landing. Is the technology there? It's emerging. I think you'll probably see a pilot here uh, in terms of us putting some of that in place here at YVR in the very near future. Step one, she says, is to build the confidence of the traveling public. But buckle up, the aviation industry still faces years of turbulence ahead. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. It's almost nostalgic looking at some of those right. shots of the airport. <laughs> One day we can travel again. That's right. Remember oh. those days when we could fly? <laughs> <sighs> All those months ago. Have back in the hugs? olden days? Yeah, back in the old in, days when people were close to each other. In the before times when we yeah. sat right next to each other? Yeah. The before times. <laughs> That's yeah. right, yeah. BC All right. Before COVID. <laughs> Final word on weather, Yvonne. Uh, mainly cloudy for tomorrow. Some showers rolling in towards the evening. A nice clearing just in time for the weekend with some sunshine and warming up too. Excellent. All right. Thanks very much, Yvonne. Thanks, Squire. And the rest of you for watching. Have a great night.